the prophets of the Bible, especially those in the Old Testament, have a really hard time shaking their reputation as being gloomy and pessimistic, don't they? The Old Testament prophets have a really hard time shaking their reputation as being gloomy and pessimistic. And in, in their defense, in their defense, they did live in tumultuous times, just like we do. They did live during the time of the shifting of entire civilizations, just like we do. They did live at a time when their nation began to flicker out of existence, just like ours. They did live and preach at a time when the leaders who ran their country were godless and corrupt, just like ours. Just like today, the prophets lived at a time when the wicked nations of the world were in a global mosh pit for control and world domination, exactly like ours. They lived at a time when the people who were supposed to be God's people were total apostates and no longer trembled before the word of God, just like today. And so we will forgive the prophets, I hope, that they don't tell a lot of jokes and that they at times seem a little serious. And so yes, the prophets did indeed have the weighty task of preaching the wrath and judgment of God and yet let's not overstate the case. Let's not overstate it, shall we? Because that is not the only thing they preached. See, oftentimes contained in the preaching of the prophets is what I like to call the silver lining of sovereign grace. In other words, there was a silver lining to preaching the clouds of judgment, and that silver lining was made of sovereign grace. What I mean is, yes, the prophets were preachers and proclaimers and heralds of the wrath and judgment of God. That's true. They did that, absolutely. But at the exact same time, they also got to preach the sovereign grace of God that saves the souls of men. You see, the prophets make clear, absolutely clear, that God would not only conquer the nations through wrath and judgment, he would also, get this, conquer the nations through mercy and the sovereign grace that wins them to himself. That's exactly what we see in the text this morning. Name of the silver lining of the grace of God. That the plan of God for nations in rebellion is not only to crush them with the hammer of judgment, but also to deliver some from the nations with his sovereign power and invincible grace. That God displays his power and glory not only through the condemnation of the nations, but through the salvation of the nations as he conquers the human heart and wins them to himself. It's exactly what we see Isaiah doing, speaking about, preaching about, because you know that we are in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23. And what these are are a series of poetic, prophetic sermons of judgment called oracles. These oracles are about pagan nations that surrounded the people of Judah in that day. They were hostile. They were wicked. They were powerful. They were mighty nations that if you were living in Isaiah's day, you would be tempted to trust them and you would be tempted to fear them. And the reason why these oracles were written, you understand, was to keep both of those things from happening. 
These were scary, tumultuous times. And yet the question is, how did these oracles do that? How did these oracles prevent Judah from trusting and fearing the nations? Well, you don't need to fear or trust those who will be destroyed by God. And you don't need to fear or trust those who will be delivered by God either. In other words, God is supreme and sovereign, either in the condemnation of the nations or in the salvation of the nations. But either way, do not trust them and do not fear them. See, that's the thing. That's, that's one of the many things that just makes these oracles so worthy of our time. Because in them, believe it or not, are these profoundly practical and potent and, and, and powerful applications for the everyday trenches of real life. These oracles were given, you understand, to provoke trust in Yahweh alone. To purge fear from the human heart. To prevent compromise and giving in to the woke mobs of social justice. To promote mission and to preach the gospel with courage. To promote worship of Yahweh alone. And to prepare us to long for the kingdom to come when all things will be made right. Last I checked, all those things are really practical. That's what these oracles are designed to do. And if we have ears to hear, that's exactly what's going to happen to us. And this morning we get to oracle number four. Oracle four of ten in which there are these gloomy clouds of judgment and yet also silver linings of sovereign grace. For two particular nations, Syria and Cush. The Syrians and the Cushites, which is modern day Sudan and Ethiopia, by the way. These nations were fierce. They were brutal, hostile nations that if you were living in that day, you would be tempted to trust them or you would be tempted to fear them. And yet if you took what the text has to say to heart, you would be less inclined to do so. Why? Because fear cannot live long in a soul that loves and believes the supremacy of God. So here we go. This morning I want you to see from our text five reminders, five badly needed reminders of sovereign grace in an age of darkness and fear. Five badly needed reminders of sovereign grace in an age of darkness and fear. And this oracle comes in two parts, one to Syria, the other one to Cush. Let's begin with Oracle 4, part 1, which is about Damascus, which I call desolation and deliverance to come. Desolation and deliverance to come. You can hear that in the title, can't you? You can hear it, that, that clouds of wrath are coming for Damascus, for the Assyrians. But at the exact same time, you can also hear that the silver lining of deliverance is coming as well. And you can see here that this is oracle number four, which means there were three before this. Time to review. Oracle number one was all about Babylon. You remember it was a psychedelic song of end times events. Oracles 2 and 3 were portrayed the destruction of three particularly pernicious nations that had always been a thorn in the sign of God's people, the Assyrians, the Philistines, and the Moabites. And although God had been gracious to them and patient with them and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness on these wicked nations, the time had finally come to bring the hammer of judgment and wipe them out of existence. And none of those nations exist today, by the way. And yet, equally 
troublesome, equally dangerous, and at this very moment, equally eager to invade Jerusalem and level it to the ground, was Syria. Syria, not Assyria, but Syria. That ancient foe, the people of God, who lived 183 miles north of Jerusalem. And although in absolute shambles and ripped and torn apart by Muslim extremists and corruption and civil war, the country of Syria still exists today, barely. And like most of the kingdoms surrounding the Jews in that day, they were not good neighbors. In fact, around the time when Isaiah wrote this, get this, Syria had joined in a traitorous alliance with the northern kingdom, the people of Israel, against the southern kingdom of Judah. And what that means is that Judah is now staring down the barrel, not just one, but three different hostile nations who wanted to invade them and obliterate them out of existence. Syria, their apostate brothers to the north, and the beast of Assyria coming from the east. And if God doesn't intervene and save them, they easily could have done so. I mean, their very existence hangs in the balance. And so as a citizen of the southern kingdom of Judah, you would be tempted to either fear the alliance from the north, or you would be tempted to join the alliance from the north, or you would be tempted to join Assyria. But either way, either one of these nations would, could destroy you, which means no matter how you slice it, you were out of options. And you were going to lose. Or were they? Were they really out of options? Was there not a third option on the table? Was not Yahweh their God? The God of Israel? The sovereign, infinite God who parted the waters and destroyed the Egyptians? Was not the third option on the table to trust Yahweh to deliver his people in a sovereign and supernatural way? What were the battalions and chariots of all the nations in the world compared to the God who spoke galaxies into existence? How? How did the people of Judah forget that one nation alone with God is always in the majority? So the question is, the question is, for the people of Judah with their backs against the wall and being completely out of options, the question is, who would they trust? Who would they trust? And the exact same question goes for you here in this room. When your back is against the wall and you are completely out of options in your trials and challenges and difficulties and pain and the fears that convulse, that, that cave in upon you like an avalanche, the question in that moment is always, who will you trust? Who will you trust? When this oracle was written, you understand, to persuade the people of Judah that Yahweh could and should and must be trusted. Let's find out why. Let's take this oracle in three parts. If you've got the notes, you know what I'm talking about. If not, either way we're going. First, let's see uh, uh, the imminent ruin of Damascus and Ephraim. The imminent ruin of Damascus and Ephraim. This is all going to make sense, I promise. Look verses 1 through 3. The oracle concerning Damascus. 
Behold, Damascus will be removed from being a city, and it will be a heap of ruins. Aror, the cities of Aror will be abandoned to the herds, and they will gather there, and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortress from Ephraim will disappear. And the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. And they will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares Yahweh of hosts. Now, you know, of course, that Damascus was and still is the capital of Syria. Some even claim it's the oldest existing city in the world. And yet it's never been a godless, godly city, which is exactly why there's an oracle of judgment against them. And again, here, here's the thing. The future judgment against this wicked city would have been hauntingly relevant to the people of Judah because, again, at this very moment, they were conspiring with the northern kingdom of Israel to conquer them and invade them and to overthrow them and to expand their own kingdom. And this violent overthrow, kind of like the games Risk and Stratego, except that the swords and the bodies and blood are real. And I want you to notice there in verse 1 that this is an oracle of Damascus. Oracle. You remember the Hebrew word oracle literally means a burden. This is heavy. This is weighty. This is crushing upon the soul. This is not going to be an easy sermon to preach. This is not going to be an easy sermon to hear. And the reason for that is because it's not just about Damascus alone. It's not just about the Syrians alone. I am sure Isaiah shed zero tears over the predicted destruction of an evil nation that at this moment wanted to wipe them out of existence. That's not the problem. The problem is this oracle of judgment had two objects in view, two nations in mind. Look at verse 3. This oracle is also about who? Ephraim. Who or what is an Ephraim? You know what that is? That's another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember the Jews were split into two. Right, into two warring and hostile kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The point is, in writing a judgment against Damascus, Isaiah was simultaneously writing a judgment against his apostate brothers in the north at the same time because Israel and Syria were in cahoots. One stone, two dirty birds, one oracle, two nations destroyed, one of which was their very own family. No, this would not be an easy sermon to preach at all. And yet, look what Isaiah predicts against Damascus, the capital city, verses 1 and 2. Behold, behold, Damascus will be removed from being a city. And it will be a heap of ruins. The cities of Aror will be abandoned to the herds. And they will gather. And there will be none to frighten them. I mean, you can totally tell would not turn out well for Damascus, did not turn out well for Damascus. Notice that Isaiah begins by saying, behold, behold. It kind of sounds like Shakespeare, but that was an expression, a prophetic expression that meant surprise. This is shock. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody could have predicted this. There's, there's no way that the, that the ancient, massive, fortified, wealthy, powerful city of Damascus could ever be leveled to the ground in a heap of ruins. There's no way that this is going to happen. Oh, there was a way. There was a way. And that was the sovereign decree of the living God. 
because you see, if he decreed it, it will happen. If he ordained it, it will take place. And what God had decreed, get this now, what God had decreed was that in the very near future, enemy armies would move into Syria and to Damascus, and they would take a wrecking ball to the city and level it to the ground. And that is exactly what happened just a few years later. Verse 2, notice the cities of Aror. What is that? That's this, that's this major metropolitan city of the entire country. And notice it would be so utterly decimated and abandoned that the sheep could run around the city and no one would scare them away because either, everyone's either dead or in captivity. We're talking total destruction here. That's what you could see, can't you? The low-hanging fruit of application for the people of Judah. Damascus. Even the ancient mighty city of capital city of Syria, the, the titanic of unsinkable cities in the ancient Near East would be sunk. Would be, they, one day they would just be a massive pile of smoldering bricks and that crucifies the temptation to fear them, that crucifies the temptation to join them, doesn't it? And you see, that, that right there, that's why prophecy exists. You understand, it's all about perspective. It's all about point of view. You see, prophecy is all about trading your microscope for a telescope. You see, we take the microscope of fear and we zoom in on our problems, our issues, our pains and fears, and those are the only things that we can see in our view, and they simply overwhelm us and crush us unnecessarily, don't they? But you see, prophecy, the telescope of prophecy, gives us perspective. The telescope of prophecy helps us take our little amoebas and single-celled problems of our lives and look through the massive telescope of prophecy. And when we do that, we see the galaxy of God's perfections. And when we do that, faith in Yahweh overcomes our fear. In other words, amoebas don't look very big when you compare them to the Milky Way. Damascus was an amoeba that crippled the people of Judah with fear. My question is, what are the amoebas in your life that dominate you, that cripple you with fear as you look through the microscope of fear? And calling them amoebas, I'm not saying they're not real problems or that they're not serious, that they totally are. I'm just saying, do you constantly compare them to the massive Milky Way of the majesty of God in the pages of Holy Scripture? That's the question. Because that right there puts the amoebas of fear in their proper perspective, don't they? So church, my application is really simple. You need to go to the prophets. You need to look to the prophets don't just read what's easy. Don't just read what's familiar. Read those things too. But go to the prophets. Become acquainted. Become friends with these strange men whose entire ministry of their lives 
was to soothe the souls of their people with majestic visions of the supremacy of God. But you remember, of course, that Syria was not acting alone. Syria and the apostate kingdom of Israel, their brothers to the north, had joined together in a wicked alliance against Judah. And so, without even so much as a pause to take a breath, notice where Isaiah goes in verse 3. He says, the fortress of Ephraim will disappear. And the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria, do you see how it just joins them, blends them together without making a distinction? Their glory will be like the sons of Israel. What does it mean? It means they will, they will have none. <laughs> In other words, here's this point. You don't have to worry about Syria. And you don't have to worry about Ephraim either. Because like Damascus, the fortress and the city of Ephraim will be obliterated and destroyed. And 10 years later in 722 BC, that is precisely what happened. 10 years from this moment. The tanks of Assyria stormed the gates and they crushed the northern kingdom and they took the people as slaves back into Assyria. And Isaiah goes on to describe it like a harvest. Look at verses 4 through 6. He describes it like a harvest, not of grain, but of people. Describing the invasion. And it will be in that day the glory of Jacob will become small. And the fatness of his flesh will become lean. Think concentration camp. And it will be like the gathering of grain, the standing grain. And when his arm gathers the ears of grain. And it shall be like the gleaning of grain in the valley of Rephaim. The valley of Rephaim was this plentiful valley, sort of like uh, 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 central California. Just thriving agriculture. It will be like that. And the gleanings left over will be like the shaking of an olive tree. Two or three olives at the top of the branch. Four or five at the topmost branch of a tree bearing fruit, declares Yahweh, the God of Israel. Do you see what Isaiah does? Assyria are the farmers. Israel is the crops. The combines of Assyria, as it were, would plow through the land, reaping and threshing and winnowing the people and gathering them in bales, bound by chains, hurling them into a wagon headed for Assyria. That's the picture. And this happened. And they would be so utterly desolate, so utterly decimated, so utterly devastated, so utterly removed. They would take so many people out of the land that they would be like the few remaining olives at the top of a tree. That's all that'd be left. And you have to understand, Israel to this day has never fully recovered from that. You understand that, right? This was, without question, one of the blackest clouds of wrath and judgment in the history of the people of Israel. And the reason for that is because it created a crisis, a staggering theological crisis that calls the very faithfulness of God into question. To this day, the Jews are in widespread unbelief. They hate their own Messiah. Most of them do not live in the land that God has promised, which means God's promises and his faithfulness are all hanging in the balance. That's a black cloud of judgment. 
And yet, and yet on that black cloud of wrath, there is a silver lining and it's made of sovereign grace, which brings me second to the incredible redemption of man. The incredible redemption of man, verses 7 through 11. Watch very carefully what Isaiah does. Look at verses 7 and 8. In that day, mankind will look with favor upon the one who made him. And his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not look with favor upon the altars, the work of his hands and what his fingers have made. He will not look even to the asharim and the altars of incense. Did you see it? Did you see the bait and switch? Isaiah had been talking about the nation of Israel being conquered by Assyria, right? But all of a sudden in verse 7, without any notice, Isaiah expands his vision of the future to include not just Israel, but the redemption of mankind itself. Did you see it? Look again at verse 7. In that day, there it is again, that little code for prophecy, that little signal for eschatology. In that future day, Isaiah says, mankind, ha'adam, mankind will look with favor upon the one who made him, and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. Do you see it? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Not just Israel, but even mankind itself. Isaiah is picturing salvation reaching to the ends of the earth as pagan peoples on the other side of the planet will look with favor upon the God who made them and notice not just their creator in a general way, but they will look to Kadosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel. Do you see what this is? This is the silver lining of sovereign grace. The power of God to save the nations in the future is the assurance that God will keep his promises also to Israel. If he could save the nations, he could save them. Look at verse 8. Isaiah points to a future day in which mankind will no longer worship his idols and set up altars to his false gods and, and the work of his hands, but instead he will worship Yahweh alone. When is this supposed to happen? Because it will happen. And it will happen when Christ returns and builds his sovereign empire on the earth. Daniel 7, 14. All of the peoples and the nations and the tongues will serve him and his dominion will be an everlasting dominion and his kingdom will not pass away. And so you can imagine, can't you? The effect this could have had, should have had on the people of Israel. Think about it. To see these totally pagan nations in the future take a hammer to their idols and turn to Yahweh as the treasure of their soul was inevitably designed to win the Jews and bring some of them to repentance. To move them with holy jealousy to renounce their idolatry and do what, what they should have done centuries ago and thus avoid the inevitable disaster that was coming upon them. The, the point is, hint, hint, Israel, you're in total sin. 
You're in total rebellion. But you don't have to wait till later to escape. You can follow the example of these future nations today. You can follow their example today, and you can have the guarantee of everything with which Yahweh wants to lavish you. And I just want you to know that the same goes for anyone in this room who is also living in sin and unbelief. In other words, if you have not yet yielded your life to King Jesus, because this text is designed to produce in you what it was designed to produce in Israel, namely broken-hearted repentance and joyful surrender to God, who before this day, he could have justly killed you. But he kept you alive another day to hear in this sermon the earth-shatteringly good news of salvation in his son, who isn't just a man, he is God. And he didn't just live, he died. And the death that he died, he died for sinners in their place. And he didn't just die, but he rose instead, conquering the grave, rising triumphant. And right this minute, he sits at the Father's right hand and through his servants like me, for instance, calls people in rebellion to repentance and faith. And so if you have not done so, would you come? in repentance and faith, and bow before the Son. The question is, if you have not done so, why would you wait? Isn't that the question? What compelling reason could you give for the delay? Seriously, I'll be waiting up front after for an answer. What compelling reason could you give for, for delay? Why do you keep saying tomorrow? Tomorrow, I'll, I'll take it serious. Tomorrow, I'll consider the offer. Will you? How do you know that? How do you know that you will? How do you know that if you wait till later to repent, your heart will not be so hardened by sin and blinded by Satan that you might never yield your life to Christ? How do you know that? You don't. You can't make that determination. Put it this way. If the richest man in the world was offering today full adoption to become an heir of all his riches, you would not hesitate for a moment to accept, would you? And yet here's the father. Offering through his son to adopt you as his own son or, and daughter, to become an heir of eternal glory in the kingdom of his son, and yet you refuse. You got you to mull it over. You got to drink your fill of the world's elixirs first, and then you'll consider Christ, then you'll consider the offer of eternal life, and yet what fools who for an ounce of pleasure will drink an ocean of wrath. But you don't have to drink that wrath. The people you know in your life, they don't have to drink that wrath. 
Because you can have right now eternal salvation paid for in full, and there is nothing the world has to offer that makes giving that up worth it in the end. And yet verse 9. Verse 9 returns to the bleak and dismal circumstances coming upon Israel about 10 years that have all kind of been avoided. Look at the text, verse 9. In that day, there it is again, prediction of the future. In that day, the fortresses will be like the abandoned places of the forest and the branches abandoned by the sons of Israel. Here it is. And it will be a desolation. In other words, one day the land of Israel is going to look like a forest toppled over by lumberjacks and demolished to the ground. And we read this and we think, oh, typical Old Testament, lots of wrath, lots of judgment, moving on now to the New Testament. And yet the question is, why would God crush and obliterate his own people? Seems a little harsh, don't you think? Seems a little excessive and over the top, except for the fact that verse 10 says this. Why is God going to judge his people? Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and the rock of your refuge. You have not remembered. That's the issue, that's the crime. And notice how Isaiah states it both ways, positively and negatively. Your God you have forgotten, and him you have not remembered. And you understand this doesn't merely mean a lapse in memory. God just kind of slipped their mind. Whoops. Rather, you know what this is? This is the terrifying power of sin and the human heart to drift from God as the treasure of the soul, isn't it? You see, where Israel went wrong is that they grossly underestimated the power of sin, and they grossly overestimated their power to resist sin. They missed all of God's admonitions to meditate on the word day and night and to cling to the scriptures with white-knuckled intensity. They forgot. And over time, the blinding power of sin gave them dementia of the soul until eventually God became an inconvenience. And then he became an obstacle. And then they became a nation as secular and godless as the ones they drove out of Canaan 700 years before this, and that was a crime that Yahweh could not overlook. He had to move on this and punish his people. And get this. One of the ways he would punish them is not only by sending the chariots and the tanks of Assyria to obliterate them, but get this. One of the ways he would punish them was by thwarting Every single attempt they made to find fulfillment and satisfaction in anything other than him. Look at verses 10 and 11. You, using gardening as an analogy, look what Isaiah says. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and the rock of your refuge you have not remembered. Therefore, you will plant delightful plants and you will sow them. Notice, with a strange branch. 
Now there's a couple different versions out there that say something different, but you know what that is? You know what that is? That's idolatry. That word strange there or stranger, that's a euphemism used all over the prophets to describe false and foreign gods. That's what this is. The point is the delightful plants that they planted was all the hope, was all the pleasure, was all the thrills and the satisfaction that they were hoping to extract from all the idols that they opted for instead of Yahweh. And you have to understand, idolatry, like in our day, idolatry was a big and booming business. It was a total success. I mean, the worship of Asherah or Baal or Dagon or Molech or whoever, it was all about what makes you feel good. It was total immersion in what can I get out of this for myself? And it was a total success. The priests of pagan gods could gather a crowd that would outnumber followers of Yahweh 20 to 1. There was sex, there was excitement, there was music, there was ecstasy, there was dancing, there, was, there were parties, there were, there were all-you-could-eat buffets. There was the promise of crops and children and health and financial prosperities. We got girls over here. We got girls, we got statues, we got dancing, we got wine, we got parties. This is great stuff. What do the Hebrews have to offer? Well, we got the scriptures. And we got animal sacrifices to be slain for your sins. And I guess that's all. Do you see? You could begin to see how they could drift how they could peek with envy into the lunchbox of the pagans. Because we do the exact same thing in our lives. The, the point is, they were planting the noxious weeds of sin and idolatry in their lives, expecting roses to grow, having no idea that they were sowing the seeds of their own destruction. Look at verse 11. In the day of your planting, you will carefully fence it in. Picture, picture there, someone planting a very delicate plant and putting fertilizer and watering it and putting one of those little weird fence things so that no one runs over it with the lawnmower or whatever. That's the picture here, being very delicate, planting this thing. Notice, in the morning you will cause your seed to blossom. Behold, it will be a heap of rubble in the day of infirmity and like incurable pain. See it? I guess the saying is true. You reap what you sow. And it is true because that's in the Bible. And Israel would and did reap what they sowed. And Isaiah warns them that despite the great care they took with all their false gods and all the hoops they had to jump through to bring themselves fortune and security, the, the harvest they would bring in would only be a heap of sadness in the day of infirmity and incurable pain. That is the end to which all idolatry must lead. Anything. Anything to which we look other than God for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction, mark my words, we will be bitterly disappointed in the end. And I know you've been there. Because I've been there too. 
So the question is this morning, are you peeking with envy into the lunchbox of the pagans? We get the rules, but they get the joy. Is that your conception of the Christian life? Like Israel, are you, are you sowing the noxious weeds of idolatry in your life, but secretly hoping that roses will grow? What I mean is, are you looking to something, anything other than Christ to supply what he alone is able to provide? Is there anything in your life at all encroaching upon the sacred ground of your soul to be reserved for Christ alone? Anything. Because you know, don't you? You know that the only effective remedy against the seductive pull of idolatry is to get your soul captivated by who God is from the pages of Scripture, isn't it? That's the only way. The only way. The only way to slay the stubborn sins of the soul that have long had the seniority is long, long meditation upon the majesty and beauty of God from the pages of Scripture. That is it. Because you understand, if your heart be taken with God, it will no longer be taken by that which threatens to replace Which brings us then to the final part of this first part of the oracle, which I call the inimical rage of rebellious nations. The inimical rage of rebellious nations. I had to find a word that started with I. That was the only one there was. Inimical rage of rebellious nations, verses 12 through 14. And here again, Isaiah does that thing that prophets do, namely without notice, transport us into the future and give us a glimpse of what the future judgment of God will be like at the end of the age. That's exactly what he does. Look at verses 12 and 13, one of the noisiest passages in all the Bible. Various ways you can render it. Here's a kind of wooden translation from the Hebrew. Alas, or woe. Upon the uproar of many peoples, like the uproar of waters, they make an uproar. And the rumble of the nations, like the rumble of mighty waters, they make a rumble. The nations, like an uproar of many waters, they make an uproar. And that is exactly what the world is like, is it not? It's exactly what the world is like. The roaring and the rumbling and the raging of the nations of the world in a violent mosh pit for global domination. It's exactly what it's like. And you understand, this is the noise of rebellion. This is the noise of rage. This is the noise of, of hatred against the Almighty. This is exactly what Psalm 2 describes. Do you remember Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples of the earth plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together al-Yahweh al-Mashicho against Yahweh and against his anointed. That's the world you live in. And that's a scary thing to consider, isn't it? Because you see, the, the prophets are clear that things will get worse before they get better. Things will get worse before they get better. And they have been getting worse. And they are 
getting worse. And they will continue to get worse until it finally culminates in the global reign of a sadistic tyrant of, called the Antichrist whose policy will be that you worship him or you get your head lopped off in execution. I'm, I'm talking one world government, mark of the beast kind of stuff. I believe all that. And, and you understand, that's not being negative or pessimistic. That's being biblically realistic. Things will get better, worse, before they get better. And yet, having said that, things will get better. They will. Not on their own, of course. Not through political renewal. Not through education. Not through legislation. Not through activism. Boycotting riots, protests, nor through military intervention, nuclear holocaust, or war, but rather through the atomic intervention of the living God in wrath and fury at the end of the age. That'll change things. That'll bring about a new and better age, will it not? This is the silver lining of hope that gleams on the clouds of judgment. Look at verses 13 and 14. The nations, like an uproar of many waters, they make an uproar, but he, that is Yahweh, will do what? He will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, and then he's going to chase them, and they will be pursued like the, like the chaff of the mountains before a wind. And I don't know what your version says here, but that word there is like tumbleweed before a storm. The word tumbleweed there is gal-gal. The word gal means wheel. Gal-gal, something that turns and turns and turns. They're going to run and flee for their lives as before a great storm, but Yahweh will find them. This, he says, oh yeah, verse 14, in the time of the evening, and behold, suddenly before the morning comes, they are not. This is the portion of those who plunder us. This is the lot of those who pillage us. Do you see that? One day the nation's rage is going to end. One day the fist-shaking rebellion of, of the earth's godless kingdoms is going to be crushed and put down like old yeller with a shotgun. Probably too painful to bring that up. I'm sorry. But you understand when Yahweh intervenes through his son, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he will show up and he will slay them with the sword of his mouth and he will trample them in the winepress of his fury. In verse 14, it'll happen so fast that before the morning comes, they will be dead before the morning. And when it happens, it will be right, it will be just, and no one will weep for the slain. Look at the end of verse 14. This is the portion of those who plunder us. This is the lot of those who pillage us. You know what that is? That's revenge. That is the revenge of Yahweh upon all the nations that sought to oppress and persecute and murder his people Israel, which is exactly what he said he would do in every promise and covenant that he made with them, that he would vindicate them at the end. This is what's going to happen when Christ returns, when all things will be made right. Because God doesn't forget his people, not Israel, not us. Which brings us finally and quickly, Scout's honor, to the second part of the oracle. 
Oracle 4, which is all about a nation called Cush. I'm calling this sorrow and salvation to come. Sorrow and salvation to come. We're in chapter 18 now, and the question is Cush. What is Cush? Who were the Cushites? Who are these people? That's an interesting question. What they were was another nation that Israel, that Judah, was tempted to trust as the shadow of Assyria fell upon the land. They lived south of Egypt in what is today Sudan and Ethiopia, and they were, in this day, they were up-and-comers, rising stars, wheelers and dealers, an increasingly powerful and impressive nation on the brink of taking down even the kingdom of Egypt itself, which they did do. And you see, tempting though it would be to trust the Cushites to be your knights in shining armor, Isaiah's got a different idea. He's got a different idea. How about instead of trusting the Cushites to deliver and save you, why don't you go over to the Cushites and why don't you call them to repentance and faith in Yahweh? Why don't you do that instead? Instead of trusting them to save you, go tell them to repent and trust in Yahweh to save them. How's that? Which Isaiah does do. Look at verse 1. He says, alas, or woe to the land of whirring wings, which is beyond the rivers of Cush. That word alas or woe there, that's a judgment pronounced upon what Isaiah calls the land of whirring wings. What is that? That could refer, that's another name for Cush, and it could refer to a particular kind of noisy fly that thrives in that part of Africa. Notice, and this is really strange, and yet it's important. Notice in verse 2, the Cushites are described, get this, as those who send ambassadors on the sea in boats of papyrus. (laughs) What is that? You know what those are? Those are cargo ships. Those are cargo ships. You see, this is how the people of Cush gained their wealth. This is how they gained their power through exports and shipping. They had lots of cool stuff that you couldn't get anywhere else. The people were willing to pay big money for the exotic things that you could only get from Cush. And apparently they were a good-looking people too because look at verse 2. They were a people tall and smooth. And yet don't let that fool you because they were also fierce and dangerous. Verse 2 again. They were a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive people that you definitely did not want to mess with. And yet Isaiah says, go mess with those people. Go mess with them. What he means is, when they arrive on shore to deliver their goods, I want you to send some messengers over to them, and I want you to give to them a message. Look at the end of verse 2. Go, swift messengers. Go to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, to a powerful and oppressive nation whose rivers divide The land, that last reference to the waters divide the land, refers to the Nile that flows down and then it spreads out in all these other rivers. And so they had this whole river system going for them. And and say what to them? What was the message that they were supposed to deliver to the people of Cush? Verse 3, we're almost done. All those who live in the world and 